Well, I wanted to, um, I guess, add a quick note to one of the announcements, uh, and that is the ladies' study. I believe today's the last day to sign up because they need to order the books uh, tomorrow or, or Tuesday. So, uh, ladies, if you haven't signed up yet, please do so by today uh, so we can get that done. Also, uh, wanted to let you know, I think several weeks ago, uh, we announced that our son Nicholas was engaged, and so we're looking forward to 2023, having a wedding sometime next summer. Um, but we also wanted to share with you that 2023 will be also be a special year for us because Valerie and I will be welcoming our first grandchild into this world. Uh, so we are super excited about that. Our daughter Stephanie is expecting she should be due uh, end of February, maybe beginning of March, sometime in that time frame. So we're super excited uh, about that. And uh, so wanted to share that with you, our church family. So, Well, let me pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have today to look into your word, to find instruction for us, to help us, to help us in our relationships as husbands and wives, to help us to understand in, in our relationship with you. And God, we ask that you would take what we see here in the text, what we understand is going on, and help us to, to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, we live in a world today that has taken this topic of intimacy and has, has destroyed it. Lord, has, has so taken it so far from where you have intended it to be. So, Lord, we oftentimes have a skewed view. So we want to today understand better and apply truth where it needs to be applied that we might be all that you've called us to be. For that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me, let me give a, a, a quick um, um, disclaimer for those who didn't get an email this week. Um, I'm going to be talking from the book of Song of Solomon, and so some of what I have to say may not be appropriate for younger, younger viewers or younger listeners, and so uh, if you haven't already made plans for that, uh, you might want to do that, especially those online that maybe if you have little ears listening, you might want to occupy them, so you don't have to answer questions that you may not want to answer at this point in the journey. Well, several years ago, uh, many of you know, before we bought this building, we, uh, of course, we were meeting up at Shalom on Sunday mornings, but uh, we rented an office space here in Greencastle for me to have an office outside of our home. And at first, I, was, I had my office in my home, but with us homeschooling all four children, um, it no longer was, was a good option for me to get anything done. Um, and so we rented an office space in Greencastle. And at that time, when we first rented it, there were other businesses that had offices in that space. And so... Um, as I would go to work and be there, I would get to interact with different uh, people from different businesses. And there was one particular gentleman uh, that had his office there that we, we would talk here and there uh, about different things. And I came to understand him that he was a believer, uh, lived in, uh, in West Virginia, and went to church down there. And, 
And so we just, you know, we had a nice, nice conversations back and forth. And one day he said to me, he said, would you be available to go to lunch one day? He said, I have some, some things I want to talk to you about. And I said, sure. So we made plans and we went out to lunch and we're sitting there and he says to me across the table, he said, the thing I wanted to talk to you about is I wanted to ask you a question. I said, okay. He said, is it wrong for me to have sex with my wife? And I said, tell me more. <laughs> I need to understand where you're coming from, right? And as he was talking, it became clear to me, you know, he grew up in the church. Somewhere along the line in his growing up, he came to believe, and whether anyone told him this clearly or not, he caught the idea, sex is bad, and it's only necessary to, so you can have children. And they had two children, and they weren't planning on having any more. And so he was wondering, is it wrong for me to have sex with my wife? I don't remember everything that I said, but I know that I tried to help him understand what the Bible says about this issue. And, and in reality, as we look at the Scriptures, there are three purposes God has given us in His Word for the sexual relationship. And it's always, always, always in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. One man and one woman. Nowhere in all the Scriptures is sex ever talked about in a positive way in any other context except between a husband and a wife in a covenant relationship of marriage? And so I shared with him, um, and I'll share with you, three purposes from the Word of God. The first is procreation. Right? We are called in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. <clears throat> That's one of three of the purposes God has given and designed sex for. The second is our protection. 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll look at this in a little bit, but talks about the husband and the wife not neglecting one another except by, by a, uh, a mutual decision so that they can spend time seeking the Lord for something. But so as not that they would not be tempted and so it's an issue of protecting husband and wife from temptation. The third is pleasure. For the pleasure and enjoyment of a husband and the wife. And this is what the book of Song of Solomon is helping us to see. The, the pleasure and enjoyment of a husband and wife in their relationship with one another. And so, if you haven't already, would you please open your Bible to the book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. This book is a Hebrew love poem. Either to be spoken back and forth between husband and wife or to be sung, almost like an opera, if you will. One commentator says about this book, he says, it may seem strange to some readers that the Bible should contain love poetry. While the marriage relationship is meant to be a partnership and friendship on the deepest level, and that does not mean that the sexual and emotional aspects of love between a man and a woman are themselves unworthy of the Bible's attention. Sexuality and love are fundamental to the human experience, and it is altogether fitting that the Bible, as a book meant to teach the reader how to live, a happy, holy, and good life should have something to say 
in this area. Another commentator said, when we deal with human sexuality and married love, we are not dealing with simply biological and sociological byproducts of an evolutionary process. We are dealing with realities within the created order that had divine origins and divine purposes. Earth is supposed to speak to, of heaven because it came from the Creator's hand. And to treat sexual love apart from the divine intent would be to miss the glory. We deal with symbols that image eternal reality to you. Little wonder this little book is in the canon. Kenneth Boa and uh, Bruce Wilkinson in their book, Talk Through the Bible, talk about uh, the, the different ways in which this book is interpreted. Probably, apart from the book of Revelation, this book is probably interpreted in different, more different ways than any other book in the Bible, other than probably the book of Revelation. One way that some people interpret it is they see it as a fiction. It's just fictional. Right? They hold that this song is a fictional drama that portrays Solomon's courtship with a... Um, in marriage to a poor but beautiful girl from the country. There's nothing in the text that would indicate to us that this is not true, that this did not happen. Another uh, way that some people have interpreted this is allegorically. In this view, the primary purpose of the song was to illustrate the truth of God's love for His people, whether the events were fictional or true. It, it, it doesn't matter, right, when, you, when allegorizing. So they would say, well, this is... This is just there to help us see God's love for His people and then maybe to point to the future of Christ and the church. And certainly we see in the Scripture, in, in Ephesians particularly, that, that uh, God says that we can learn about a relationship with God, the church and, the, and, and Christ, His bride, as we look at marriage. And we can learn about marriage by understanding the relationship between Christ and His bride, the church. And, and I would say this is... Certainly a good application of this book, but, but there's a historical perspective that I think is the proper way to see this, and that is that this song is a poetic record of Solomon's actual romance with a Shulamite woman. The various scenes in the book exalt the joy of love and courtship and marriage and teach that physical beauty and sexuality in marriage should not be despised as base or unspiritual. It offers a perspective on human love and avoids the extremes of lust or asceticism. And asceticism is, is the, the understanding that everything physical, in the physical realm is evil. And so everything we do physically is, is, is not, uh, you know, not good. So it avoids both those extremes. And it goes on to say only when sexuality was viewed in the wrong way as something akin to evil was an attempt made to allegorize the, the, the book. But this is part of God's creation with its related desires and pleasures. And it's, a reasonable, it's reasonable that He would provide us with a guide to a pure sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Um, and so this song is a bold and positive endorsement by God of marital love in all its physical and emotional beauty. This interpretation does not mean that the book has no spiritual illustrations or applications. It certainly illustrates God's love for His covenant people and anticipates a relationship uh, with Christ. Um, and so it's, it seems to me that the most sensible way to understand this book is to interpret it as a love poem between a husband and a wife and to see that it has applications 
with our relationship with Christ. And that's how I want to approach it uh, this morning. Well, this is a hard book to follow if you read it through. There's eight chapters, and, and you're, you read it, and there's a lot of imagery here that we might not fully understand because it's, it's in a context in, in ancient Israel. Um, and so the, the metaphors that are used uh, as, as uh, Solomon describes her is, is not always easy for us to, to make the connections or to see it as romantic, maybe, for us. But... Uh, but uh, it is, and, and what, we, uh, what we need to understand is how the progression goes. And so what I want to do is kind of explain to you the progression of a book, because you're, you're really not going to get it if I just read a passage here or there, although I, I will read a particular section. Um, but let me just, uh, again, read from the, the talk through the Bible, because it gives a good synopsis of a survey of this book and how it flows. Um, they say in his introduction to this, this book is never crass but often intimate. As it explores the dimensions of the relationship between these two lovers, there's attraction, there's desire, there's companionship, there's pleasure, there's union, separation for a time, there's faithfulness and there's praise. And so we see, as you see on your outline, two, two main sections. You've got the beginning of love and then you've got um, the, um, yeah, where is it? the, the uh, broadening of love. And so uh, they write this, King Solomon has a vineyard in the region of the Shulamite. And so the Shulamite m must work in a vineyard with her brothers. When Solomon visits the area, he wins her heart and eventually takes her to the palace in Jerusalem as his bride. She is tanned from hours of work outside in the vineyard, but she is referred to as the fairest among women. This song is arranged like scenes in a one-act drama with three main speakers. You've got the bride, the Shulamite. You've got the king, Solomon. And then you've got a chorus, which are the daughters of Jerusalem. It's not always clear as you're reading it through who's the one speaking. But if you, if you keep with it, you'll understand who's speaking at what particular point. Chapters 1 through 3 give a series of recollections of the courtship. The bride's longing for affection at the palace before the wedding. You see the expressions of mutual love in the banquet hall, a springtime visit of the king to the bride's home in the country. The Shulamite's dream of being separated for a time from her beloved and the angst that she feels in that. And then the, the ornate wedding procession from the bride's home to Jerusalem. Solomon praises his bride from head to foot with superb with a superb chain of similes and metaphors, again, some of which we maybe don't relate with. And then they say her virginity is compared to a garden that is enclosed. And the garden is entered when the marriage is consummated and the union is commended even by God. And then you have the broadening of love. And, and you see that sometime after the wedding, the Shulamite has another troubled dream in the palace when Solomon is away. In her dream, Solomon comes the door to knock, and she, but she answers too late, and he is gone. And so she panics and searches for him throughout the, the Jerusalem night, throughout the night in Jerusalem. Upon his return, Solomon assures her of his love and praises her beauty. The Shulamite begins to think of her country home and tries to persuade her beloved to return there with her. And so they journey, go back in chapter 8, they journey back to her home area. 
as their relationship continues to deepen and grow. And their love will not be overthrown by jealousy or circumstances. And at her homecoming, the Shulamite reflects on how her brothers cared for her when she was in a position under them. And now she's in a position to be able to look out for their welfare. And then the song concludes with a dual invitation of lover and the beloved. So that's kind of how the progression of this book goes in these eight chapters. Uh, it's poetry. It's, uh, it's sometimes difficult to follow it all, but, um, but it's a, a beautiful picture of the relationship of a husband and wife and the way they share their love with one another. I want to read chapter 4, because chapter 4 is kind of the, the culmination. It's where we find Solomon praising her for her beauty. And at the end of the chapter, we see them coming together and consummating their wedding. And it's, the, it's again, the culmination of this. And, and I, we, I want us to see this. Again, the imagery, the, the similes, the metaphors may not necessarily click with you, but I want you to see how he communicates to her, uh, her beauty to him. So we see, chapter 4, how beautiful you are. My darling, my beautiful, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have ascended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins. And not one among them has lost her young. Your lips are like scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields all around, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. And I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Imana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards, and you have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes. With a single strand of your necklace, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils and all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue and the fragrance of your garments are like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked and a spring sealed up. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna and pure, with pure plant, nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spices. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, and streams flowing from Lebanon. You kind of get the picture he likes her, doesn't he? He's mesmerized by her beauty. He's captivated by this woman. This is God's design. God intended for women to be beautiful in the sight of men. 
for men to recognize that Jesus, to communicate that Jesus to her, for her to understand the power of that Jesus. And then we come to the very climax of this passage, of this whole section, where they come together. And notice verse 16 is the bride inviting the groom to come into the garden. And for, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 is the, the groom's response when he comes. And then the last couple phrases of chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, many believe, is God commending this. Awake, verse 16, O north wind, she says, and come, wind of the south, and make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. And he says, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride, and I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam, and I've eaten my, uh, my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. And then we see God most likely saying, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deep, deeply, O lovers. What a wonderful thing we have in God's Word where God is giving us a picture of the, the beauty of this union of husband and wife coming together. And, and God Himself is, is saying, go at it, drink deeply, imbibe, O lovers, this is not something to be ashamed of. Though it's not something that we proclaim uh, the details of in public as we do in our culture today. It is to be shared between a husband and a wife in a context, between a closed door and a bedroom, but it's something to be enjoyed. Something to be imbibed in deeply. So what do we learn from this book about intimacy? Real intimacy. Not the kind that is, again, flaunted in our culture today. What is real intimacy? And I would suggest to you we need to cultivate it in our lives. Both, for those of us who are married, in our relationship with our husband or our wife, but also in our relationship with Christ as we apply this. And I'll talk about that as we bring our time to, to a close. But there are two particular truths that I see in this book about intimacy that I want to talk about. But before we do that, what is intimacy? Dr. Norman Wright in his book, Communication, The Key to Your Marriage, says this. He says, as he's talking about it, he says, by the way, do we really know and understand what intimacy means? The word intimacy is derived from the Latin intimus, which means inmost. Intimacy suggests a very strong personal relationship, a special emotional closeness that includes understanding and being understood by someone who is very special. Intimacy has also been defined as an affectionate bond that the strands of which are composed of mutual caring, responsibility, trust, open communication of feelings and sensations, as well as the non-defended interchange of information about significant emotional events. Intimacy means taking the risk to be close to someone 
and allowing that someone to step inside your personal boundaries. Intimacy requires vulnerability. It also requires safety and security. So the first thing about intimacy that we see in this, in this uh, book is that intimacy involves commitment. It involves commitment. The greatest commitment we can have in this life is the commitment between a man and a woman in the bond of marriage. And it's in that context, as I said before, and only in that context, according to the Scriptures, where the sexual relationship is to be celebrated and is ever talked about in Scripture as a good thing. Every other context, whether it's outside of marriage, between a man and a woman, between two men or two women, it's always in the Scripture in a context of, of, of sin. Only in the covenant bond between a man and a woman in marriage, one man and one woman, because believe me, it's coming in our culture when it's going to be legal for more than one person, more than two people to be married to each other. You can guarantee it's coming. The Bible is very clear. It's one man and one woman exclusively. Intimacy involves commitment. And there are two things about this commitment. One, this commitment is mutually satisfying. Again, from the chap chapter I read in chapter 4, we see that. Um, but we also see in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where the, where the woman is, she's expressing her longing for him. She says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. May your love is, for your love is better than wine, and your oils are, have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. And so we see that there is a satisfaction that both the man and the woman experience in this relationship. If physical intimacy is going to be mutually satisfying, then we must think about how we can satisfy our spouse rather than how our spouse can satisfy us in this relationship. It's a servant attitude. And this is, the, this is how we are called to be as followers of Christ. Everything we do, we're to approach it as a servant. In our relationship with our spouse, we are servants to our spouse. And so in this area, as well as every area of our life, in our marriage, we're to approach it, how can I give to you rather than how can I take from you? Again, if the only education we've gotten in this area is from the world we live in, it's all about taking what I can get. It's all about me, me, me. One of the questions we ask uh, um, couples when Valerie and I are doing premarital counseling is, where did you get your sex education? Right? What percentage did you get from your parents? What percentage did you get from the church? What percentage did you get from, percentage did you get from your peers? What percentage did you get from media, right? Movies, television, social media. Rarely does anyone say, man, I learned about sex from my parents. My parents sat me down and talked to me about it. There are a few, but it's, it's fairly rare. Most of our education comes from our peers or from the world in which we live. And we know it ain't good. Our peers... When we're teenagers, our peers don't know anything. 
anything real about this. And the world has, has so screwed this up. And so we have a skewed view of this. And so we have a very self-centered, self-focused view of sexual intimacy. But the Scripture calls us to approach it with a servant heart. Most problems in this area come when we focus upon what we can get instead of what we can give. One, uh, one commentator uh, said this, and this is again important, and it reiterates what I said earlier in my introduction, that is that this song presents sexuality as a good thing protected by marriage rather than an evil thing made permissible by marriage. That's an important distinction. I think the church has done a really poor job in this over the years. Because what, what do we communicate to young people when they're... When they're Sex is bad. Sex is bad. Don't do it. Sex is bad. Don't, don't go there. Don't even, don't even tempt yourself. Don't, don't, don't. And then you get married. Enjoy. That's very confusing. And so people come into that really struggling with what do I do with that? Instead of helping them understand a biblical concept. This is a wonderful thing God designed for a context. Out of that context, it is detrimental to you and to the other person emotionally and physically and, 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 and spiritually and in every way because God has designed this to be for your good as a couple. It has benefits to bind you together. Sex protects the relationship because it binds people together. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 7 for a moment. And we see this issue of protection. And this passage has been misunderstood by some as well. But 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 5. He writes, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may... Devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul is saying, listen, because of immorality, and he was, this is a pagan culture he's writing to, but where, where they basically were, were engaging in re sexual relationship with prostitutes at the temple for worship and all these different things. It was just commonplace. And he's saying, no, when you come together, there's an exclusivity here. And some people have seen this as, you know, your, your body belongs to your spouse. And so, like, I've heard men talk about the fact that, hey, well, my wife's body belongs to me. So, therefore, I can do what I want to her. No, 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 no. Her body belongs to you and doesn't belong to anybody else. 
your body belongs to her, not to anybody else. So Paul's saying, you don't have a right to give your body away to a prostitute or anyone else for that matter. Your body is not your own. And you go back two verses, the context, immediate context of the passage, chapter 6, 19 and 20. As Paul tells him in verse 18 to flee from immorality and not be joined with a, with a, a prostitute, he says, Do you not know, verse 19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Glorify God in it. When you get married, your body not only belongs to God, but belongs to your spouse. You have no right to use your body to be joined with anyone else. That's the primary point of this. And so we need to understand that we are... And he says, don't deprive one another. Why? Because this is a natural uh, thing that God designed for us to experience. And so when we deprive uh, each other of that, then that longing grows and we then are looking for other places to fulfill that. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, writes this about this passage in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, here, at a time in which women were legally considered the possession of their husbands, Paul makes the revolutionary claim that the husband's body does not belong to him but alone, but also to his wife. It communicates negatively his obligation to refrain from engaging in sexual relations with anyone other than his wife, and positively his obligation to fulfill excuse me, his marital duty to provide her with sexual pleasure and satisfaction. This was a major blow to the traditional double standard, namely that men were expected and allowed to have multiple sexual partners, but if a woman did, she was despised. Paired with the previous statement that the wife's body also belongs to her husband, Paul was teaching that each partner, male and female, had the right to mutual sexual relations. Nothing like this had ever been said before. So Paul is commending this relationship and this um, and the sexual relationship between a husband and wife um, and saying you, you need to continue in this for the protection of each other and uh, for the mutual satisfying of one another. Secondly, this commitment is mutually exclusive. And you see this, uh, again, chapter 2 of, of Song of Solomon, verses 3 and 4. He says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. Uh, in, in his shade I take great delight and sat down, and his fruit was so sweet to my taste. This is what she was saying. Uh, he has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. You see that um, exclusiveness where she is saying, he's the one for me. And then you see in verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. And this is repeated few more times throughout the book. This mutually exclusive relationship with one another. When, when physical intimacy is not exclusive, it is not satisfying. When it's not exclusive, it will not be satisfying. And again, we live in a culture that, that is just so obsessed with all this stuff. And so there's, there's so much going other places, even if just with our eyes and our minds. 
that the exclusive relationship between a husband and wife no longer satisfies. When all that other stuff gets put away, there's great, deep satisfaction in that relationship, in, uh, in that sexual union. Proverbs 5, we go there for a moment, we see this uh, exclusivity when uh, Solomon is writing about uh, two young men and he's saying to avoid being with a, a, uh, a prostitute or anyone else. Again, you, you see this language right here in Scripture uh, and, and you can't get away from it. But he says in chapter 5, verse 15 and following, drink water from your own cistern. He's talking about, he just told him to stay away from um, uh, the strange woman, the, 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 the adulteress, if you will. He says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. And he's sp speaking um, imagery here of the sexual relationship. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? And then he gives this warning. For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he'll be held by the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. That whole warning is about sexual immorality. This relationship is to be mutually exclusive. And when we do this, it is mutually satisfying. One more quote from Keller. He says, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to give help to help you give an entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not, he says, you must not use sex to say anything less than that. It is designed by God to be Mutually satisfying and mutually exclusive. It's a commitment <clears throat> at the highest level. And no one should ever expect this kind of relationship with anyone other than somebody that you are ready to and have committed in a covenant relationship. Secondly, intimacy involves communication. This is eight chapters of these two lovers communicating back and forth with one another. Intimate language. Telling each other how they feel and, 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 and describing to each other um, their love, their affection for one another. Let me talk just two things about communication. There are different levels of communication. There are different levels of communication. I want to quote from Dr. Wright again, um, or to just share with you. He talks about four, five levels of communication, and it's important that we understand this. Um, if we're going to develop intimacy, 
in our relationship with our spouse or in any relationship, right? I mean, intimacy does not necessarily equate sexuality, though that's a piece of it in a marriage. Intimacy is being close in relationship with somebody else, and certainly it relates to our relationship with God. But here are the five levels. Level one. First level of communication is limited to sharing facts and expl explanations or information. Conversations at this level are much like exchanging newspaper stories. Right? We communicate on this level all the time. Right? We're just sharing facts back and forth with people. That's only level one. And he says this does not accomplish intimacy or getting to know a, another person. It's just sharing facts. Second level of conversation centers on sharing the ideas and opinions of other people. Conversation at this level is a bit more interesting and yet discloses little of oneself, right? Just sharing what somebody else thinks about something. That's level two. Level three produces moderate intimacy. At this level, you're sharing your own ideas and opinions. You're disclosing some of your own thoughts and risking minor vulnerability, but you're still not revealing who you really are. This is how I think about this, right? And we do this... Right, with political things or whatever. Well, this is how I feel about it, you know. And there is a level there, but it's starting to move toward elements of intimacy. Level four involves a higher degree of intimacy in conversation. Now you're sharing personal preferences, beliefs, concerns, and also some of your own personal experiences. Sharing what you've been through and how it's affected you impacted you. And by the way, our desire for life groups is to move beyond level one, two, and three to level four. So we really get to know one another. So that we're able to share who we are. We can be a little more vulnerable with one another and share our experiences and our, our highs and our lows. That's our desire. Why? Because when we grow in intimacy with people, when we learn to be more vulnerable, we are known, we know and we are known to a better, to a deeper level. And there is a, uh, there is something mutually satisfying about a relationship like that. It doesn't have to go to the, to where a marriage can go. But it can get to a better level where we are known and we know one another and we can minister more deeply when we know one another more fully. Level five is the highest level of conversation and communication. Here you share your inner feelings and preferences, likes and dislikes. You share what is occurring in your inner life and you open up completely. You move beyond talking about events or beliefs or ideas or opinions to talking about how these ideas or events or people influence you and how they touch you emotionally and inwardly. At this level, emotional expression has moved from talking from the head to talking from the heart. And again, how great it is when we can get to that place with people where we can be that vulnerable and open and really share deeply. It takes time. And that's why we have the life groups go for two years because we want to build that over time, the comfort level, so that we can begin to share and really be able to minister to one another at a deeper level. And I, I, I've so appreciated that opportunity uh, in the groups that we've been a part of uh, most recently in the past four or five years. It's been wonderful to have that happen.
But understand there are different levels uh, of this intimacy. Um, it's how we get to know each other more deeply. Um, Dwayne uh, Garrett in his, in his uh, commentary on, on this book of Song of Solomon says, Note that the lovers speak to and of each other frequently and in great detail. They relish their pleasure in each other, not only with physical action, but with carefully composed words. Love is above all a matter of the mind and heart and should be declared. The lesson for the reader is that he or she needs to speak often and openly of his or her joy in the beloved, the spouse. This is for many lovers a far more embarrassing revelation of the self than anything that is done with the body. But it is precisely here that the biblical ideal of love is present in the uniting of the bodies and hearts of the husband and wife in a bond that is so strong as death. Many homes would be happier if men and women would simply speak of their love for one another a little more often. And so, your homework. On the back of the handout, a discussion question. If you are courageous enough to do this, because it's, it's hard. There are some questions there. I would encourage you individually to answer those questions. And then have a date night. This is for spouses. <laughs> have a date night. Go out and talk about your answers. Hopefully it's, it's, it's helpful to you um, to be able to think about what do I appreciate about my spouse? How can I tell him or her that? And, and, and to share that. You may, this may be really awkward. Of course, this is probably awkward, right? Awkward for me to be up here talking about it. Um, but communicating is really critical. Uh, and communicating at this level is very critical to our developing, continuing to cultivate intimacy. Oftentimes what happens is uh, when, when, we're, when we're engaged or we're just married, man, we're talking about this stuff all the time. Right? We want to talk about it. We're willing to talk about it. But as life goes on and we stop talking about it, we start drifting apart and we start functioning. And our relationship becomes functioning. And then it's hard to come back to it. And I want to really challenge you to do this. Um, to learn to communicate in this way. And then the second point is simply that we need to learn to communicate clearly and effectively. Um, clearly and effectively. And I love Larry's illustration here. Of the, uh, you know, I have to say, this was, I'm not clever enough to come up with this idea. That was Carrie's idea. So I'm going to throw her under the bus. Um, she's the one that came up. I mean, on the spot, the mo moment, I went there to get the tomatoes, and I said, yeah, I'm going to give some to Larry. And she said, how many does he want? Give him these ones. It was like, she thought that quickly. Uh, it was great. So she's the creative genius behind that. Um, so, but uh, we need to learn to c communicate clearly and effectively. Um, let me give you a, a, a humorous example of this um, that I came across the other day. <laughs> so this is, you know, you remember years ago in the newspaper when there would be classified ads that would 
advertising. So this is the this is the advertisement for sale. R. D. Jones has one sewing machine for sale. Phone nine five eight after seven p.m. and ask for Mrs. Kelly who lives with him cheap. On Tuesday, notice this is the next day. We regret having erred in our R. D. Jones ad yesterday. It should have read one sewing machine for sale cheap. Phone nine five eight and ask for Mrs. Kelly who lives with him after seven p.m. The next day. R.D. Kelly has informed us that he has received several annoying phone calls because the error we made in the classified ad yesterday. His ad stands corrected as follows. For sale. R.D. Jones has one sewing machine for sale. Cheap. Phone 958 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Kelly who lives with him. Finally, the next day, a notice. I, R.D. Jones, have no sewing machine for sale. I smashed it. Don't call 958 as the telephone has been taken out. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Kelly. Until yesterday, she was my housekeeper, but she quit. Miscommunication can lead to all kinds of problems. And we could probably all stand up and give testimony, right, of all these miscommunications that, that we, we have um, between our, our spouses. Um, Last night, we went to visit Stephanie and her husband. I, we, we had lunch with them in Harrisburg. And uh, afterwards, we went to Bass Pro Shop. And we're walking around for a little bit. And then we're getting ready to leave. And I'm, I'm getting ready to pull out onto the main road. And there's so much busyness there. And as I'm getting ready to go to the intersection, I realize I don't know how to get on the main road from here. And I panicked in that moment. And I said, because Valerie had her phone, but she was looking at, looking at a text that one of our kids sent earlier. And I said, I kind of with an angry voice. I said, I don't know where I'm going. I heard I'm turned over, and I need directions, you know. And, and I, was, I was, again, I was feeling in that moment that I did not want to get stuck in traffic going the wrong way and, and all these busy streets in the middle of, of all this. And so I was feeling anxious, and I communicated that in, a, in an aggressive way. She took it as I was angry at her because she was not giving me directions and not looking them up. So I pulled into a parking area, and she looked it up, and then we pulled out, and we went. And then once we got on the main road, she, she looked at the text. And then she says to me, you know how you ask me if we ever have any miscommunications? <laughs> I just want to be clear. Were you angry at me, or were you, you know, and I said, no, no, I wasn't. It's just in those moments you panic, right? And then it, what comes out is, is the panic. And, uh, and I didn't mean to be in any way aggressive towards her. I was feeling in that moment panic, and so it came out in an aggressive way. And so these are the kinds of things that happen all the time, right, in our marriages. And so we have to learn to communicate more clearly and effectively. Say what you mean, mean what you say, when you, when you talk with one another. And when you do, in a moment, mess up like that, we need to uh, apologize and, and, and clarify things with one another. Um, in fact, I'm not sure I even said I'm sorry. I'm saying sorry right in front of everybody. I apologize for that. Um, I clarified, but I didn't apologize. So, um, But we need to say what we mean and mean what we say. Um, so how does this then relate? Let me just close with this. How does this relate to our relationship with Jesus? If intimacy involves commitment, in our marriage, intimacy with Jesus involves commitment. 
We are committed to him. If we're going to have a close relationship with Jesus, we need to be committed to him. Jesus said in John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. That right there is a statement of intimacy. Where Jesus is saying, if you want to know me deeply, if you want, to have, uh, if you want me to disclose myself at a deeper level to you, you have my word, you need to obey. There's a commitment involved in intimacy with Christ. And God, Jesus calls us to that. There is also the important element of communication. God communicates to us through His Word. We communicate to Him through prayer, right? His Word is very clear. This is God's communication to us. 2 Timothy uh, um, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It says, right, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. This is God's Word to us. And Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews says it's, it's, it's living and active and sharper than every two-edged sword. It's able to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and able to, to judge the intentions of the heart. God communicates through His Word. And if we're never spending time in His Word by ourselves, learning what He has to say to us, how are we going to have an intimate relationship with Christ? We've got to hear what He has to say to us. If the only thing we ever think we're hearing from God is, is these impressions we have in our mind when we're in a situation. I mean, well, I think God's leading me this way. And we have nothing in the Word to back up that uh, direction in our life. We can, now, once in a while we might get it right, but many times we're probably going to get it wrong because we don't know how oftentimes to discern what we want, what we think, the impressions, all these things in us, and how God's Spirit is moving in us. If we don't have the Word of God to go back to and say, does this line up with the Word of God? So we must be in the Word of God if we're going to hear from God clearly. And then we've got to talk to God. We've got to cultivate a prayer life. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 tells us we have this confidence in the Lord that, that if, we, if, if we pray anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us in anything we say, we know that we have the request we have asked from Him. When we pray according to His will, we know that He's hearing us and that He's going to answer those requests. We have that confidence. Uh, many of the Psalms talk about um, God hearing us. One Psalm is one, Psalm 116, 1 and 2 says, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ears to me, therefore I shall call upon Him as long as I live. These are the reminders to us. If we want to have intimacy with our spouse, we need to learn, we need to have that commitment and that mutually satisfying, mutually exclusive relationship. And we need to communicate at a deep level with one another. And if we're going to have a close, deep, intimate relationship with Jesus, there is a commitment that involves this exclusivity. This is why throughout the scriptures, um, idolatry, Going after other gods was often talked about as spiritual adultery. Likening that, con that connection. It needs to be a, a commitment to Christ and we need to communicate 
hearing from Him through His Word and speaking to Him in prayer. If we're willing to step into these things and walk through these things, we will be cultivating intimacy in our relationship with Christ, with each other, uh, with our spouses. And, um, and, and this is how God has designed us. We're made in His image. Part of His image is relationship, intimate relationship. Just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have close, intimate unity, God designed us to experience that with Him and with each other. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this book, the opportunity to explore these things. Um, Lord, I pray that You will guide us. We acknowledge that we oftentimes do not have a proper view of intimacy because we've gotten our cue from this world. We have um, we've not always done a good job in our relationships with other people and certainly in our relationship, marriage relationships. And so, Lord, we pray that you will help us to move in the, in the right direction. Uh, Lord, heal some of the hurt that has happened because we haven't communicated well, because we haven't always cultivated real intimacy in our relationships. And God, I pray that we would have the, the humility enough to say, I, 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 I wasn't doing the right thing here. I, I, I failed in this. Um, and God, that we would be able to continue moving together or start moving together if we've drifted far apart. God, I pray that you'll save marriages. That you will build unity, build intimacy. Lord, certainly in our relationship with you. Again, because we have misunderstood this idea based on our culture, we sometimes struggle with using the word intimacy with our relationship with Christ. But Lord, this is what you invite us into. Deep, abiding relationship, commitment, communication. So God, do a work in us. For the glory of your name, for the good of your people, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.